What made the blogs hip hop? Well, I mean, whatever makes anything hip hop is the remix. This is Dallas Penn, the celebrated blogger from DallasPenn.com. The reimagining, the reappropriation of a tool. And whether it's, you know, somebody banging on pots and pans on a curb for a drum set, or somebody taking uh, the idea of passing information and saying, I'm taking it out of the hands of this small cabal of gatekeepers and I'm setting it free so that people can form their own opinions, that people can process that information. That's really what the weblog era did. We thought it was going to change the world. And in some ways it did. To record companies, magazines, and radio stations, the blogs had mainly been an afterthought. A bunch of wannabes doing part-time A&R work or writing long-form profiles on new artists, or debuting new records to a niche audience, they could get a pat on the head. Blogs would never be those big corporations. But when these websites morphed into something that radio, magazines, and labels were not, all these things at once, that's when things got scary. Where it's the real. And this is Episode 5, Revenge of the Nerds. The evolution of the blogs was not unlike the Fast and Furious franchise. What started out as a simple story of a police officer infiltrating a street racing crew morphed over 10 movies into secret force assassins, flying cars, and the promise of space racing. The story of the blogs was a little less explosive, but just as expansive. Blogs went from simple pages meant to exchange ideas and music links into something bigger, stronger, less easily defined. These sites became a catch-all for everything that fell within the enormous bounds of hip-hop culture. Places for music discovery still, but also music videos, video diaries, podcasts, photo journals, documentaries, and commentary of all kinds. Work just moved faster and hit more places than traditional radio, cable television, or print publications. Carly Hustle, then assistant program director at Hot 97. I think that the blogs took some power, if you will, away from DJs to a degree. DJs were the ones that were breaking music in clubs, on the radio. I do think some bloggers had real A&R skills as well. So some of them were eating the A&R's lunch. They definitely were occupying big chunks of major label budgets as far as posts and promotions. Money that used to go into other spaces. It went from street teams on the ground sniping posters and, you know, putting up table tents at clubs and all of that to putting up a digital ad on a popular blog where everybody was going. So those dollars were moving around. They kind of got into a lot of people's pockets and power, really. This is low key. We figured out how to get music to the consumer without the fluff. We figured out that I didn't have to be a writer for Billboard. I didn't have to be a DJ for Hot 97. I have an opinion and I have the content that you guys have as well, but I have it before you. So now it's shifting. Now they're looking at us like, who the fuck are these kids with an internet connection with all this content? We're just as dope, if not doper, than the other people that are writing and commenting and voicing their opinion on the culture. We just had to take it a little bit more forcefully. There's no question that the internet in general has the power to democratize spaces and to democratize voices. 
in the glory days of blogs, it felt very pure. These people have curated this artist. This is what's next. They are tastemakers. They are the ones that have their ear to the street, so to speak. And there was definitely credibility when you were posted to certain blogs during a specific time frame of the blog reign. This marked the first time creatives of many stripes were able to swing things in their direction. Dallas Penn was pretty well known growing up in Queens and Brooklyn, known by the teachers who asked him to leave a few high schools, by the cops who picked him up regularly for stick-ups and stealing cars, known to be such a problem that his parents kicked him out of the house for a decade. He was beyond lucky that a kind architect right by Central Park got to know Dallas, gave him a chance to learn at a drafting table, and paid his tuition through college. But when it came to blogging, Dallas Penn found a way to be whoever he wanted. He wrote under about a dozen different names, Blue Cheese and Billy Sunday and Geneva Jones and Afrobot among them. Each one had their own email address on the website. People are not happy with a person being complex. People want us to be like friggin' insects, specialists. Like, oh, that's the music writer. Oh, that's the sneaker writer. Oh, that's that's the guy who talks about boots. Oh, that's the guy who likes this artist as opposed to that artist. So people think we're all like fucking ants and we're specialists, but I'm the ant eater. I'm everything. And, and we're all actually everything. I don't think we have enough confidence to give ourselves the space to be everything. But I don't give a fuck. I'm everything. In April 2006, Dallas wrote a post giving instructions on how to upgrade your McDonald's hamburger to a Big Mac for just a dollar. Some saw it as a workaround to save a couple of bucks, while others realized it was a deeper metaphor about how to make it in America. It became known as the Ghetto Big Mac. To Rafi Cam, a blogger who ran the hip-hop magazine Oword.com, it seemed too good to be true. Because, as with everything, you can't tell what's real and what's not on the internet. I thought it was a cool idea. I was a little scared to do it at first, but got over my nerves and tried it. And I uh, got a drive through <laughs> and it worked. Rap was like, yo, man, you're a wild boy. I went to school with a dude that makes film. And yo, this would be a dope YouTube film to make. Because this shit on YouTube was, at the time, even though I had a couple of YouTube videos up, YouTube was mostly people like taking videos of their cats. And so we made a plan to meet up with Dallas and make this video. I hadn't met him in real life before that. We were only just fans of each other's sites. And Kaz drove us to McDonald's in Williamsburg. And <laughs> we, met the, we met Dallas on the way. Rafi was shocked when he saw Dallas because at that point, all he knew was the skinny guy pictured on Dallas's site. You know, we see Dallas and he's this big guy, literally, and also this big presence. But also on his site, all you'd seen were sort of these old pictures when he was very different looking as a youngster. Dallas and Rafi's Ghetto Big Mac video was real and really popular. People on MySpace took it and blew this thing up. There's nothing to match having something get a million views. Like, fuck, what is that? Like, for me, a thousand views is, hey, listen, that's success. A hundred, a hundred views even, you know? Dallas, Rafi, and their filmmaking partner Kaz would together form Internet Celebrities, producing tens of videos that challenged the way the world worked. Hollywood may not have recognized them as obvious superstars, but here online, they were larger than life. At the same time, there was us. It's the real. Jewish brothers raised just north of New York City. We loved the culture from afar. The system had worked in shaping our taste, whether Hot 97 or XXL Magazine or Def Jam Recordings. And neither one of us thought we'd be anything more than fans. 
In 2004, my path changed when I drove two and a half hours to see Kanye West perform in a tiny club in Asbury Park, New Jersey. Within a year, Kanye's team brought me to L.A. to document his time at his first Grammys. For that entire week, I was shown what laid behind the curtain. And soon, I was shooting behind the scenes for Jim Jones and Missy Elliott and meeting with Lior Cohen. And I could have hidden behind the lens. We could have played the background. Jeff was working at HBO on a comedy website and wanted to ultimately write for a music magazine like Rolling Stone or Vibe. But we decided to build a new world instead. Chappelle was off the air. There was no SNL for rappers, no Instagram or TikTok. We came up with a TV show idea that mixed hip-hop and comedy and spoke the language authentically. We cold-emailed executives, knocked down doors, and pitched our hearts out. When no one bit, we decided to take matters into our own hands. That would mean stepping in front of the camera. We called ourselves hip-hop sketch comedians, and the first video we made was called Deconstructing Biggie. We took Biggie's line and looked at it from the UPS driver's perspective, who hated it, and the FedEx and DHL guys who thought it was the greatest thing in the world. We handmade delivery uniforms. We had our friend Shinsuke dance like Puffy in a FedEx shirt. We downloaded the instrumental for Flavor In Your Ear Remix, and we edited the video into a crisp 90 seconds. This wasn't made for television or in the hopes that a Hollywood agent was watching. We wanted to bring it directly to the only people who mattered to us. Those who populated Nah Right. You know, I said, these guys are funny, man. Like, <laughs> honestly, nobody else was doing anything like what you guys were doing at the time. You know, like, I've always been a big comedy fan. Obviously, I'm a big rap fan, so I can't think of anybody who was doing anything anywhere near that. You know, it was kind of like Saturday Night Live meets hip-hop. So it was refreshing and new and funny. It was like an independent rapper or underground rapper who you know isn't going to get play. It was a way to give shine to that person. You know, I said, oh, these guys are great. More people in the world need to see this. Whatever I could do for them, I'm going to try to do SK opened our email and gave us his cosign. Our voice traveled to every corner of the world. Deconstructing Biggie went viral. Ray Rodriguez. Every Monday when a new video would come out, like the video where you sampled the U part of Soldier Boy's song, and it matched up with Boys to Men. Here's D-Bills. It's The Real was the first one that was doing skits with the rappers, and it was funny. And y'all relationship with SK really helped the rappers have another side that people could see besides just, yo, I just recorded songs about the streets all day. Our weekly videos didn't come without some backlash. After we'd been around for a month, Dallas Penn published some thoughts about us. He said that, aside from not being cool or funny, we weren't hip-hop. He went on to say, quote, We were foolish to expect white folks to trade in their supremacy tickets for this hip-hop movement. He felt we were using this space as a stepping stone to other things, as so many others had done before. 
He accused us of being two more opportunistic white guys in a long line of them. His motivations for the post were nuanced. On top of being culture vultural, he also saw us as competition with an unfair advantage and no legitimacy. On our side, when we saw what he wrote, we were surprised. My brother and I thought we were all part of the same online community, that hip-hop was the connective tissue, that there was nothing more hip-hop than making something out of spare parts. But it was naive of us to assume he'd understand our intentions. He didn't know us. Shit, we didn't know him. And we didn't think we were skipping any lines because we were still living at home, making videos for free, and not stopping his success. You know, the blog era was great because so many people were able to step out and and express themselves and move around the gatekeepers. Um, you were the first to to check us for privilege. And I think that's a necessary conversation to have. Can you just... Talk about how you saw us in 2007, 2008. Yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate you guys for very often I, I criticize people. And criticism either makes some people fold up or makes some people better. To you guys' credit, you guys didn't fold up and you kept working on it. I was brought up to watch for certain things like the voyeuristic nature that whites have with black culture. And it goes past hip-hop, it goes past jazz, it goes past blues, it goes to the heart of the country that we live in. So I felt like, man, listen, I got to make sure that these people that are coming here aren't simply tourists and aren't simply here for, like, the safari. And to be honest, not knowing you guys at all, just from the outside looking in, that was the first feeling that I got. As I would come to know you guys, I would say, okay, boom, they're still here. They didn't run away. Oftentimes, I see folks that come into the space, and they really embody the aesthetic of the space. But then when shit gets out of trend, man, they shave their fucking face off. They cut their beard off. They stop fucking wearing their hat backwards, and they fucking go corporate. The bounds of the conversation were changing. Growing pains would come with that. The list had always been vetted either from the top down or from the streets. But now you had guys like us, or even Dallas Penn, who were coming in from the sides. XXL editor-in-chief Vanessa Satin. What the internet allowed was people who never had a voice on hip-hop to have a voice now, right? So maybe they weren't the people debating about hip-hop at the cafeteria table or on the corner or in the classroom or in your regular conversation, but now... They might have had a voice in a way that they didn't through a blog or through the internet. So the conversation got larger because of hip hop, because of the internet. And it created people who normally maybe weren't part of the conversation to now be part of it. And it just, to me, was wide open of what could happen. Hot 97, the radio station where hip hop lived, was like lots of traditional media companies. Employees had a ladder to climb. Funkmaster Flex, who dominated the airwaves each night, started by carrying crates for Chuck Chillout. Angie Martinez, the voice of New York, began as Flex's board operator. But down in Washington, D.C., a thrice-fired radio DJ whose most consistent gig was spinning records late night at a McDonald's felt his only outlet was the internet. This underground rap head's name was Peter Rosenberg. I started the website because I think I was between jobs, and it lasted a while. I had like a good year of being out of work. I went and interviewed Raekwon at Rock the Bells in DC and I put it up on my little blog. It was a place to host content because I just didn't really have a job. 
XXL, who'd built up their powerhouse team of bloggers, wanted to add Jay Smooth. The same Jay Smooth, who had been an internet pioneer since 1997 and had run his own blog, hiphopmusic.com, since 2002. With no one to answer to on his site and on his radio show, he could freely share his opinions on the Iraq War and Ja Rule, neither of which he very much liked. So when XXL called, Jay was dubious. Normally, I wouldn't have been particularly eager to join, but the two people who were helping run their blog endeavors were Elliot Wilson and SK, both of whom I had a personal connection with. Like We basically set it up on a handshake deal, and I joined what I think was a real strong uh, squad in retrospect. A more pressing issue, though, was that Jay was over-blogging now that everyone was doing it. He'd been blazing trails for so long, he'd essentially made his way to California. It would be as if Neil Armstrong had been on the moon long enough to see two frozen yogurt shops open next door to each other. Hip-hop blogging was reaching a point where it had turned into something different than what I really loved about it. The times I enjoyed the most were when you could blog in the most traditional sense, like just post five paragraphs, ten paragraphs about a topic, and then we have a discussion that builds on that. So I started testing out what would happen if I started making video blogs, and it connected with the audience immediately in a real powerful way. The videos Rosenberg was making were less urbane. Made at a time when his voice was without an audience, Peter created his own fun, recording parody songs, almost like a balding Weird Al Yankovic. First came his take on Rich Boy's earworm Throw Some D's, called Throw Some Cheese. The video featured him in the dairy aisle and on the toilet. Soon after came his ode to his alma mater's college basketball rival called This Is Why Duke Sucks based on the rapper Mims and his song, This Is Why I'm Hot. Peter sent the video with instructions to friends on how to spread the word. It quickly popped up on sites of all kinds, sports, comedy, and hip-hop. This is why you suck. This is why you suck. This is why, this is why, this is why you suck. This is why you suck. This is why you suck. This is why, this is why, this is why you suck. Your shorts are super short, so we can see your butt. This is why, this is why, this is why you suck. The plan worked, and that weekend, it was on fire. And then I remember the funniest part was, the whole video is about how much I hate Duke, and how much everyone hates Duke. And then I was rooting for Duke in the tournament. I'm like, the further they go, the more the video lips. So like, let's go Duke. Duke lasted only 40 minutes, losing in a first-round upset to Virginia Commonwealth. That was why Duke sucked. For whatever hesitancy Jay Smooth had in joining XXL, his shit was popping off. Over the previous 18 years, he'd been on a small radio station where he'd spoken to Jay-Z and a tribe called Quest. But now with video, the impact was like a shot to the vein. Jay Smooth's new medium was a reflection of the man, quite literally. With Jay's face directly in the camera lens, you could sometimes make out the bookshelves in his apartment or the cat who'd yawn in the background. He'd delve into homophobia, racism, domestic violence between the late rapper Big Pun and his wife Liza Rios. His biggest video, though, in terms of impact and lasting presence in public discussion, might be how to tell someone they sound racist. You know, it's the one that's been like my stairway to heaven. <laughs> like it's it's uh, still constantly cited and 
sparked lots of great discussion, conversation, reflection for me, seeing all the different ways people engage with that and all the follow-up discussion is generated. Jay would see his videos get placed on college syllabi and would guest on MSNBC. His opinions, always based in hip-hop, were getting huge platforms in the white mainstream. Rosenberg grew up dreaming of working at Hot 97. When he would visit his grandparents in Queens, he would tune in and imagine himself one day spinning the same turntables as Funkmaster Flex. Later, when job hunting, Peter mailed his demo tapes to executives at Hot. I went up and had a meeting there, and they were really nice to me, but they weren't interested. And, you know, many times. I never once sent in a tape and got a job as a result. It was a bummer. And I was getting a lot of no's. It wasn't just them. I was getting no's from fucking Tuscaloosa. I was getting no's from everywhere you could get no's. Every small market that I, like, I was sending stuff to random Cleveland and all over, all over. And I'd have to go look through my email. Like, really, I really pretty small markets. And I, I don't even think the people really were listening. People may not have been listening, but programming director Ebro Darden was watching on YouTube. A co-worker at Hot 97, Frank William Miller Jr., knew Rosenberg from the artist-founded fan site and message board that took on a life of its own, OK Player. So he offered to get in touch, and Ebro hired Rosenberg in 2007. For me, Rosenberg was the comedy aspect. He understood comedy. He was taking hip-hop and turning it into comedy. And he cared about the essence of the culture, and he wanted to do it in a smart and funny way. He was self-deprecating. He represented that suburban audience that was consuming the station. When I first started real late, my late night show on Hot 97 in 07, I was getting like 75% of my music from Not Right and Two Dope Boys. It was a cycle, actually. I would get music from them, and then I would also send them my show, and they would upload my show sometimes, too. Hot 97 was now in the internet business. Not long after, Ebro would pair Rosenberg and another homegrown DJ, Sypha Sounds, on their own show. Ebro encouraged their camaraderie through practice recordings, which turned into Juan Epstein, the first hip-hop podcast. I'm more known in New York than anywhere else, for sure. But the reason I have been able to get love and know a lot of people from all over the world is because, yeah, they know I'm at Hot 97, but the reason they know I'm at Hot 97 is probably because a lot of those early blogs. With MTV's schedule filled by reality shows, music videos were no longer a priority for record labels. But Rick Cordero, a guerrilla filmmaker from Queens, saw a lane for low-budget, high-impact videos on YouTube. Def Jam's promo team took notice, led by Steve Carlos. SK loved Rick's work. So because of SK, any video Rick did, no matter who it was, it could be Bo Schmiggity from wherever, <laughs> SK would post it. And then the blog started getting more and more popular because people were going there to watch and started using that as a destination. Steve, whose job was to maintain relationships with the biggest DJs around the country, always had SK's site open on his computer. Seeing Rick's work with indie artists was a revelation. He made it his mission to track Rick down, partner with him, and feed him work with Def Jam's roster. For Rick, it would raise his profile immensely and put some money in his pockets. For the label, it gave their artists a new credibility and an automatic post on nawright.com. Kendall Freeman worked alongside Steve, They started off as unpaid interns together, 
and showed a commitment and passion for the music and the work. In an effort to make themselves indispensable, they commandeered a tiny supplies closet, dragged some chairs in, and made it their workplace. Known as Young Savin's Stevo, they proved their worth inside Def Jam, and while there, built a marketing brand and online presence named, funnily enough, best of both offices, Gabby Peluso. They made a name for themselves, and they put themselves in this tastemaker world that set them up like little moguls, and they were young. They were the breath of fresh air for the younger kids coming through the building who were looking for kids their age that understood. Detroit rapper Big Sean. Man, they just knew the future of the music industry so early on. And they were the first people that I saw as soon as I walked into Def Jam. They were the first two people that greeted me and were showing me love. And I immediately went down to where their offices were. And like, I remember freestyling, like right when I met them for them. And Kanye put it on his blog. And like, it was like a thing. Young Savin Stevo loved the energy around Rick Ross and Young Jeezy and Rihanna. And hey, Jay Z, the greatest rapper ever was president of the label. And, as it turned out, the president was secretly recording a concept album based on an upcoming Denzel Washington film called American Gangster. Yeah, so what if you flip a couple words like a triple letting birds? Open your mind, you see the circus in the sky. I'm ringing them brothers, bonding and barely with the pies. No matter how you slice it, I'm your motherfucking guy. Just like a beat. We were just young and we weren't in the executive chair. We didn't have friends, but Peck Eyes and Crystal Isaacs, when they were having these secret Jay Z meetings, they would call us into the studio. And when we come listen to the phone, we're like, who are these little fucking kids coming in on our super exclusive conference? confidential Jay-Z thing because he was retired at that point. And then one day Pecos came downstairs and was like, yo, you best of both office motherfuckers. Yo, I need your man Rick Cadero. Huh? Hove got a new song. We tried to come up with a campaign for it. So they invited us down to the studio on 26th Street. It was me and Kendall. I called Rick and said, Rick, get your little ass downtown right now. We're about to go meet with Jay-Z. Jay had somehow gotten his hands on an early copy of the film for inspiration. The instruction as it was relayed to Rick was to film a trailer for Jay's single, Blue Magic, a spare, haunting Pharrell beat that followed the journey of illicit product around the streets. Not that Rick would know. He'd have no access to the music for the filming. Working on a Jay-Z project didn't mean there was any change in production style. They ran around the city, begging for cameos, and even threw a 100-foot extension cord out an apartment window, down five flights, and into a car for power. Rick edited the video clips to an instrumental he had from DJ Babu from Dilated Peoples and hand-delivered the trailer to Jay. This is Rick. The first thing he said was, you know, I, I see you're getting your name out there. And I was like, really? You? Like, you're actually on now, right? Looking this stuff up? <laughs> we showed him the edit. They was like, wow, that's fucking incredible. Gave us a song, allowed us to put it out. And that's how we seated it on the street. Because it was Rick who shot it, and it was Hove, and then it was us, SK put it up on Not Right, and the shit went viral. Rick Cordero, who made horror vignettes with his dad's VHS camera, who started college as an engineer because he figured he'd never be a filmmaker, who made himself a director-slash-editor-slash-cinematographer because there was no budget, was now working with his heroes and for Fortune 500 companies. 
Yeah, it certainly opened up a lot of ancillary opportunities for me. You know, there was that Sprite commercial I did and then a few commercial opportunities through agencies. And that came from the street credibility of the NA rights. And that was just something like, I don't know if I would have gotten into those conversations and into those corporate rooms without having that in place. Hip-hop had started out in the park and had grown slowly but steadily from the Bronx to the rest of New York City and from New York City to the world. If it was built on one thing, it was competition. To be the best MC, the best b-boy, the best DJ around. And once you conquered your town, you hit the next town over and the next one after that. That's how reputations were built and careers too. Picture Jay-Z battling Busta Rhymes in high school and then DMX, and then LL Cool J, all before he got on the radio, just trying to get his name up. Mixtapes were the same way, whether big or small. In the mid-2000s in New York, Joe Budden was going back and forth with G-Unit, Ransom, Saigon, and Prodigy. With the arrival of the blogs, you could put a song or video up and be everywhere all at once. DJ Drama. Cole, Wiz, Drake, Kendrick, they didn't necessarily have to follow the same rules that applied to hip-hop for the last 25, 30 years in a sense of it being you got to be hot in your backyard, you got to be hot in your city for you to take over the game. Like, these kids were all from various parts of the country and they were getting hot on the internet so they were creating fan bases to various places beyond and besides their hometowns So it was almost like they could double back and be the shit. You see what I'm saying? And that is very key to what blogs brought to hip-hop because it created playgrounds that niggas didn't have to be hot in Fayetteville for them to be hot in Atlanta after that. They didn't have to be hot in Toronto for them to be hot in New York. They could be hot in New York and then double back to Toronto or be hot in fucking L.A. and then double back to Pittsburgh. And that's all to the blogs. After Joe Budden was dropped by Def Jam in October of 07, he understood that his presence needed a reshaping, a reimagining. Releasing heavy and complex music as an independent artist, he found lots of support online. But to market his appeal beyond his New York City base, Joe got real. Joe Budden TV was part of my independence plan. It was, it was part of my plan for being the small fish, no pond. I said I was going to take advantage of the fact that I'm not hiding anything. I was going to do the opposite of whatever the labels were saying. So all the rappers were scared to turn the camera on. All the rappers were scared to talk about a relationship. I was just going to turn the camera on in my house and do like a Truman show of all access at any given moment. You can get some content and you never know what this is about. I was doing this with a camera. Like I was walking around with a camera everywhere. I was uploading myself. There was no edits, renegade style. This is before YouTube allowed you to put videos up for longer than 10 minutes. It was pretty early. And and it was was a hit. It was huge. That was probably early in the YouTube ecosystem. Nothing like the polished MTV Cribs. This was Joe getting into petty arguments with his then-girlfriend Tahiri over whether she was hungry or not. Making fun of his engineer for being locked out of the studio. Every one of his buddies seemed annoyed to be on his camera. Joe's friend and podcast partner, Ice. Originally, we hated it. When I say we, I'm talking about just the people around him. It's like, dude, what are you doing? Why are you talking to these strangers? Like, what are you doing? 
I'm always like, yo, fam, come on, please. Like, don't, <laughs> can you please put that the other way? I'm from the era where we did not want to be on camera. He's from the Especially same era. <laughs> yeah, but he, he, he had a little bit more foresight. Like, be honest, Joe was ahead of a lot of things that are happening. You know, Joe, uh, we spoke to Ice, who said he did not like being on camera when you turned it on him. Uh, did you care? No. <laughs> I only I only care when it begins to affect the content. Joe realized that he was the content. His songs had a shelf life, but his life could never just sit on the shelf. The blogs were open at all hours. With Joe, there'd always be something to talk about, something to show. There were no more constraints about how or what he would sell. This is Ev Boogie. So it was like artists who were in that mind frame of remarketing or rebranding themselves felt like they were open to other opportunities that they weren't being given from the framework that the music industry was. And I think that they saw the opportunities that the internet and free press could do for them in their coming out, if you will. Currency was at home in New Orleans when the blogs fully opened his eyes. When my homeboy showed me a video that Gucci Mane like, had his homie shoot in his living room, and it was on, on Smash.com. And you know, I didn't even know you could do that. I thought like you had to wait for the record label to do stuff and shit like that. And fucking here's this guy shooting videos. Currency the Hot Spitter was, over the course of six years, a member of all his hometown's biggest music cliques. First, Master P's No Limit Records, then Birdman's Cash Money Records, and finally Lil Wayne's Young Money Records. That made him a rarity. When he chose to go out on his own and leave the side of Wayne, his schoolmate growing up, that made him a huge question mark. Going independent in 2007, 2008 was, like, not cool. You know, like, what no. what, did, what did you think your prospects were at that time? None. <laughs> uh, I, I, knew, I knew that there would be nothing. I knew that pretty much the whole industry and all the allies that I had met, people that I met through, like, making moves with cash money and young money, I knew that I probably wouldn't be able to tap into those resources because people are only cool with you because of who you could get them around, you know? Like, I, I wasn't Lil Wayne, but I was Lil Wayne's homie. So it's like, well, it's cool to be cool with Spitter because if I ever need, if I can't find Wayne to get a verse, I could probably just ask him to ask him. So it was like shit like that. So I knew like not to reach out. I didn't look for no fucking help. I didn't ask nobody for shit. And I just did my thing, you know? Going that route didn't just mean losing contacts. It meant no more publicists, radio team, or marketing staff on the other end of a phone call. There was a part of Currency that was resigned to the idea that his art, vibey, laid-back, smoked-out sonic trips, might never reach beyond car stereos around the Crescent City. And then he found the blogs. The homie came to my house with a and fucking Google searched me. He was like, man, he was like, he was like, you've been working. He was like, and I was like, how do you know? And he was like, it's on the internet. And then I found reviews for higher than 30,000 feet and shit like that. And I was like, oh, these, this is like fucking Vibe Magazine, but not Vibe Magazine. I would like fucking like waking up to see like if the freestyle that I put out the night before got to all the blogs I fuck with the most, you know what I'm saying? 
I did a tape every month in my apartment. We're putting out more and more shit just so we could see it more. Like we seeing ourselves damn near on TV, pretty much on the computer screen. Long as you don't want something, then they're gonna post it, you know. So we just kept on doing shit, you know what I'm saying? Given his experience next to some of the most popular rappers on the planet, he'd been pushed to believe that his own sound was niche. But with his popularity on the blogs, maybe niche was relative. Especially when promoters began to reach out with offers to headline concerts. At that point, we was against the norm. Like, we weren't what was going on. So, I always would pull up to a venue. I would feel for promoters sometimes, because I'm like, oh, this guy's just such a fan of us. Like, he wants to break bread and book us for the show, but he doesn't know he's about to lose horribly. Because he's going to pay, you're going to pay me. But it's like, a lot of people in your town aren't as cool as you, bro. And they're not going to want to hear this and they're not coming. You know what I'm saying? But the blog era created uh, another system for people to, to reach out and find one another. So shows started getting big because motherfuckers like you going to this shit. People becoming friends at the shows and shit. Touring became Currency's main source of income. Instead of focusing on album sales, he only recorded projects he enjoyed on his own schedule. Solo projects. Projects with his partner in rhyme, Wiz Khalifa. Projects with producers like Alchemist, Harry Fraud, or Ski Beats on Spitta's hazy ode to Michael Knight, the smooth main character from the TV show Knight Rider. He recorded with the purpose of giving it away online, saving him the legal nightmares and negotiations in clearing samples, as well as giving his listening audience plenty of material they'd want to see live and in person. And in the true sign of his new stature, Currency could actively tell people no. Labels were trying to give me record deals because my name was cool that I always heard of him. And so they're like, do you have anything sound like this? Or they'll send me beats. And they're like, this guy's hot. You know, he did this. Won't you jump on one of these? And it's like one of those, like an auto-tune record. And so I wish I could find those records to play them for you, like the records that they sent me. And it's like, guaranteed, your record deal is tomorrow, you know? Pick up your Ferrari tomorrow at the office. Just please record on this song. The hook is already on it. Just let's go. And I fucking couldn't do it. You know what I'm saying? And the recognition I was getting from the blogs and just motherfuckers saying, like, it's dope. You know, dudes doing his own thing. Blah, blah, blah. That shit was like the fuel to keep me going. I lived off the love until I got to the money. You know what I'm saying? Being a New Orleans rapper came with a whole lot of expectations and boundaries. Currency decided he didn't want to play by those rules. He was able to make a living traveling around the country and still become the new face of his city. Niggas have told me this before, like, they're like, yo, bro, thanks for making it cool for people to be themselves or be independent and just do their thing. And I'm like, all right, and that's dope. But I think the whole blog era made that possible because artists who weren't fitting into the mold of what the labels wanted and shit, we had no way to get our music out or no way to find people who was like-minded like us outside of who lived up the street from you or who lived in your neighborhood or who came to open mic shit or whatever like that. So the blog shit created like another internet. It was like a sub-world of people looking out for dope people and making sure that they got represented and shit. 
In 2006, Onika Mirage, a girl from Queens who'd studied drama at New York City's famous LaGuardia High School, was just dabbling with rap. After uploading some of her music onto her MySpace page, she connected with a hustler with a big personality, a man named Big Fendi. She thought that you were hitting on her, right? Yeah, she thought, you know, typical, you know, MySpace time. I, I, I mean, she was a beautiful girl, so I was definitely, definitely, <laughs> I definitely was flirtish. Like, what up? I don't know what my approach was back then, but I think I was kind of like, hey, big head. <laughs> what know. Big Fendi was a pretty big deal. Having cut his teeth, road managing for Big Daddy Kane, and shooting dice with Biggie Smalls. And at the time, operated an independent record label and production company called Dirty Money. He convinced Nikki that with his help and a few changes, she'd be on her way to a major label deal. Now, Fendi couldn't sell a quiet, laid-back girl named Nikki Mirage, but a hypersexualized female rapper named Nikki Minaj? That's something you could put on a poster. So Fendi went about getting Nicki Minaj seen. Because the mixtape mark would introduce the person as a sound, but you didn't know what they looked like. And in that era, if you was an unsigned artist, you wasn't getting a radio play. So the mixtape market was your radio play and the DVD was your BET. Street DVDs sold in the same places as mixtapes were testosterone-fueled marathons of bitches, weed, money, dogs, and cars. A woman showing up on screen, looking the way Nikki did, and demanding to be looked in the eyes was a rarity, to say the least. The goalposts were always different for men and women. There were dudes who have gotten chances without charisma, without style, without talent. But for women, not only did you have to check every box, but you had to look good while doing it. Dominique Maldonado, an A&R manager and promoter. Everybody's going to fall prey to the same biases and the same tunnel vision of what they might find interesting. Being on a cover, being in print is very effective and not something that can often benefit women. And like we're still talking about style and fashion, whereas like these women have always had real talent and skill set. But I just think that those aspects help deliver the message, you know, for people who aren't necessarily going to sit and listen. Fendi knew that Nikki's looks and name could get them in the door. Sure enough, Kevin Lyles, then at Warner Music Group, agreed to meet. The catch, though, was that he wanted to have Juwel Santana ghostwrite for Nikki. He told me the whole thing about female rap and how it's short-lived, it's not going to last, all that. And, you know, not to throw Kevin under the bus, but he passed on Nikki Minaj, too. When they met with Craig Kalman, the chairman of Atlantic Records and a legendary A&R specialist, they brought a CD with their five best songs. I played it for Craig, and he said, well, I'll, you know, I'll pass. You know, he wasn't really a big fan of female rap at the moment. Shout out to Craig Palmer, who made the biggest mistake of his life. Nikki and Fendi refused to go down that easy. A fire lit, they prepped a second mixtape called Sucka Free, where, like 50, she would jump on other people's beats and make them hotter. Gucci Mane's Freaky Girl, LL Cool J's Doing It, features from Jadakiss and Lil Wayne. Kevin, Craig, and anybody else who doubted could purchase the project on Nikki's website. Also available on her website, The Piece de Resistance, a sucka-free poster with Nikki in a bikini squatting and licking a giant lollipop. In an interview with the website rapindustry.com, Nikki said, quote, This picture with me sucking on this lollipop and showing how cute my coochie is was... 
the best thing to happen in her career thus far. She promoted the poster as, quote, jerk-off material. That picture was actually took in because I was trying to show homage to Little Kim. Back when Little Kim did it, it wasn't no internet. So viral, it didn't ever go viral. It went viral in, in the jails and maybe, you know, people households. But in the era of the internet, I wanted the world to see my artist emulate something that I thought it was a dope time in hip-hop. And Nicki did a good job at it. And her pussy was real fat in that, in that picture. <laughs> that picture went everywhere. Commenters went crazy. Nikki went viral for her looks and not for her music. In the mid-2000s, the few women who had broken through previously, Kim, Foxy Brown, and Remy Ma, were in and out of prison. And Missy Elliott had stopped putting out albums. Pretty much everyone was getting dropped. In 2007, Eve said in an interview, Girls used to approach me like, I rap. But now it's usually guys that give me demos. No girls have come up to me in a while. Noah Callahan Bever, at the time, the editor-in-chief of Complex. Look, the music industry chases what's working. Not that there was not talent in the marketplace, but labels run after what is successful. And so if you have a Foxy and Kim making tons of money and crushing it, then you're going to get Eve. And there's going to be an investment in more artists that are sort of inhabiting the same space. The music industry is fundamentally fiscally conservative. They like making bets on things that they know are going to succeed. Nikki was up against an industry that was slow to move and reluctant to leave stereotypes behind. Carly Hustle. Labels look at women as being very expensive, and they look at women as, you know, hair and makeup and outfits, and it's just, you know too much money. And so that's why we aren't going to sign one because we don't want to have to keep up with the glam. Nikki started to feel that she wasn't getting the respect she deserved. She thought men who were her peers were getting looks that she should have gotten. So she made changes. First, she moved to Atlanta. There, she'd leave Big Fendi and hire Deb Antney of Mizay Entertainment as her manager. Marissa Mendez, then a blogger for allhiphop.com. And was like, you know, I want to interview you. And she wrote back and was like, hell yeah, let's do it. They'll connect you. So we did the interview. But then they called me back and they were like, you know, we're trying to bring Nikki to New York. And we don't really know a lot of people out there. You know people. Nikki and Deb's new goal established Nikki Minaj as more than a pretty face with a thousand voices. She was an artist first. I ended up connecting her with French, too. And then that's when they made um, the New York Minute remix that she got on first. And he wanted to do a sexual song, but Deborah was not allowing that at the time. A social person by nature, Marissa, her hair dyed bright red, could be found at the center of any scene, whether aspiring artists or aspiring gatekeepers. Born and raised in New Jersey, she tapped into the New York hip-hop scene through the internet and was an early and devoted fan of Dipset, Joe Budden, and Nicki Minaj. At this time, I'm a senior in college. I honestly didn't know what I was doing, but I knew that I believed in her so fucking much. In my mind, like, Nicki Minaj was a superstar, an absolute superstar. Like, there was no question in my mind. And I used to, like, get in arguments with my friends about, oh, she's going to blow, and they'd be like, "Mm, I don't know who she is or whatever. So to me, this run was super important to really brand her and put her on the map. And I didn't necessarily have a strategy to it other than knowing we were bringing her there to legitimize her her and it was on me to get her in as many doors as humanly possible to, to tell that story and to tell her come up. As Nikki prepared her final mixtape, Beam Me Up Scotty, 
It was imperative that Marissa introduce Nikki to the people with the most influence. The bloggers. The Lowkeys, Chuck Creekmers, Angela Yees, the Karen Civils. Karen also grew up in New Jersey where her mom had a strict side and wouldn't allow her to listen to rap in the shower. So she was stuck with 106.7 Light FM. That not only led to her fandom of the Backstreet Boys, but a fascination with the internet. As a teen, she started the third biggest fan website for the group. That's where a quiet and lanky Haitian-American girl who loved A.J. McLean, the bad Backstreet Boy, could find community. Karen would go on to start her own blog, KarenCivil.com. Like Ashley Outrageous, Perfection, Hustle Girl, and I Love Lola, Karen spent her days and nights constructing warm spotlights in talent scouting up-and-comers like Drake, J. Cole, and a girl who worked hard to prove herself in a crowded room of men, Nicki Minaj. You know what let me know? She was exactly that bitch, and she wasn't going to be played with, that she held her own, the BET Cypher. Take it back to that BET Cypher, who she was there with. I believe it was Joe, Wale, and everybody else. And she came and she devoured. She wasn't looked at as a female rapper. She was a rapper. She went in there and shut down. She held her own with a lot of these MCs. So to me, she changed the narrative of a female MC. She was just an MC, period. Call me Dracula, cause all I do is count chips. Your money, many, I ain't talking about the mouse trick. These girls running like I just threw the bouquet. They know I'm headed to the top like a toupee. Now all the bums is wondering where I be at. You ain't a Barbie, it's none of your freaking beeswax. These little rappers, I can see them in my dash cam. I know they got you like Oscar by the trash can. Mecca from Two Dope Boys spent the first 27 years of his life in California. Basically, you had to be related to Dr. Dre or Death Row to get any kind of noise out here. DJ Quick, Dr. Dre, and NWA, just anybody that was remotely related to Death Row Records was definitely getting play all the time. After Pac died, after Suge went to jail, California music was confused because they didn't know what their sound was anymore. Ironically, our sound has still remained the same ever since, but none of the stuff was connecting in a way as it was in the 90s. Everywhere Dom Kennedy went, he had a Dodgers hat on. Lamert Park to Santa Monica and back from the west side to South Central. He was so L.A. But Dom's world was opened up thanks to his dad's nephew, Troy. I used to watch him judge rap music. He was the first person to like, tell me, oh, this is whack. You know what I mean? Shit on the radio is whack. Then listen to this, this shit. T- you know what I mean? And he would only play like things that was high, high quality. You need listen to Tribe Called Quest. Like listen to Brand Newbie. You know what I'm saying? DMX is hard. You know, like he would even have artists that he wouldn't fully like, but he would know they would put out a good album. Like I remember listening to Volume One in my lifetime a lot. You know, he wasn't a big Jay Z fan, but he was like, yeah, imaginary players. He would play those type of songs over and over, like, yeah, these is real songs. And on the same side of that, if your songs was whack or somebody tried to play a song in his car, he would literally be the one to, like, throw the CD out the window and don't even care. Similar to playing basketball, everyone in Dom's neighborhood could rap a little bit. When there was a cypher, if he was bored, Dom might show out, but he wasn't really interested in doing what everyone else did. Only after he graduated high school did he think back to Troy's opinion of popular music. 
I'm listening to what everybody putting out and what people dropping. I'm like, nah, it's no way. Like, I can't do this. You know what I'm saying? At least to this level, or I don't have something that people will be interested in. I just always felt like I had something to contribute. Dom's mission was to rep for his coast, but be bigger than the coast. Dom Kennedy made was, was special to me because one, he told an explicit story about South Central, about LA. And at the time, you know, I wasn't traveling as much, so I really didn't have a perspective of what LA looked like. I hadn't, I didn't have a perspective of what South Central looked like from his eyes. And his storytelling was just phenomenal. The whole point of rapping that life so tough was to get somewhere else, you know, to experience more. I wanted you to see what I was saying, even though you listening to my music, you know what I mean? I wanted to sound like you could watch it. And I figured that was the key to all of this, you know, from my perspective. It's like, nowadays, you don't know who's from where. With me, I was intentional with trying to come from an L.A. perspective and do it as pure as I could in hopes that that would be accepted around the world for sure. Dom understood that relationships would be his way forward. Guest appearances on songs or on stages would introduce him to new audiences and new opportunities. The world Dom was born into demanded he collaborate with local artists like his forebears had done. But if he didn't evolve, he feared it'd be his CD thrown out the window. Dom was drawn to outsiders beyond his city limits, the ones who lived online. It was a pleasure really like, you know, watching people's careers develop as well as mine. Linking up with J. Cole, you know, young J. Cole, for real. Chuck English, you know what I mean? Just getting to Chicago and making songs that I would eventually drop on other projects. There's so many motherfuckers, for real, for real, I would have to shout out. Man, all over the country, you know what I'm saying? Wale, Smoke Dizza, even OGs like Bun B. I remember him always showing me love when I was going to Texas, you know what I mean? Bun B would be the model. Bun was a rarity a rapper who sold millions of physical CDs, but also celebrated and succeeded on the internet. He was comfortable in his own shoes and appreciated what everyone else was rocking. He was a bridge between generations, friends and collaborators with both Jay-Z and J. Cole. When a track that Cole produced for an upcoming Bun B album prematurely leaked, Dom immediately downloaded it, added his own glowing verse, and sent it to the blogs. Think about that the most L.A. rapper, on a Fayetteville producer's track, paying tribute to a Port Arthur legend, titled Bun B for President. Hey, you know the residents, dirty South Confederate. Hey, we should hold elections. I say Bun B for President. He represent them real niggas. TX to ATL to NC, yeah, them real niggas. Them real niggas. Hey, you know I represent Westside checking in. If we gon' hold elections, I say Bun B for President. He represent them real niggas. And get your money up without no record deal, nigga. That's real niggas, hey. The web was a reset screen that had evolved into platforms where creators like the internet celebrities, Jay Smooth, Rick Cordero, and Karen Civil could not only be seen, but thrive independently. Dom Kennedy didn't have to look for distribution through priority records like NWA. He didn't need to partner with Interscope like Death Row or Aftermath. He'd start his own company called OPM, Other People's Money. Dom always knew that his voice would carry. The blogs would show him just how far. 
I was doing shows in LA and I might have known everybody in the crowd. I did a show in San Diego, which became one of my strongest markets. And it might have been literally seven people in the crowd. So the first time we went out the country and we got a show in London and I'm back to thinking about those type of stories. And I'm like, damn, I, I don't really know. Like, you know what I'm saying? It's not no way to gauge it. The Yellow Album is for free. It's no blog promoting your sales numbers or like how hot you are. We out there, we shopping a little bit before the show, doing what we do. You know, a couple people I remember came up to me like, okay, you Dom Kennedy, that's what's up, man. Great to meet you, I listen to you. I'm like, damn, that's dope, we in London. Again, I don't know shit about the show, what's gonna happen. By the time we performing, man, the motherfucking venue going so crazy. That was one of the first times I was truly like overwhelmed and like I had an outer body experience with the rap because I'm like performing, but I'm sitting there in my mind and looking at myself like, damn, bro, like you far as fuck from LA. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like you a long ass way from doing shit that you used to do coming from where we come from, my homies, you know what I'm saying? Any of that shit, like I'm not even literally supposed to be here right now. And I'm way in London sold out and this shit going crazy you know what i'm saying like after the show i just remember me and my boy mike Rousset, he been with me from the jump and we was just sitting on the stage after everybody left and we was just couldn't even talk and we like damn shit didn't change the blog era is executive produced for other tone by pharrell williams moses shoyola and scott benner Executive produced for It's The Real by Eric Rosenthal, Jeff Rosenthal, and Steve Carlos. Produced by Greg Mayo and Osmi Rollins. Written, researched, and hosted by Eric Rosenthal and Jeff Rosenthal. Original score by Greg Mayo. Edited by Greg Mayo. Story edited by Timhotep Aku. Fact-checked by Brandon Callender. This is The Blog Era.